Hello, our She Said, She Said friends. Welcome to 2020's very first rockin' episode of She Said, She Said. And to start this, so nice we had to say it twice, year the right way. We're beginning with one of our fun hashtag eye candy shows, a very special feature where we celebrate and honor internet movers and shakers who are ideal. And by that I mean they are interesting, innovative, and iconic. They are incredible men and women, hence eye candy. I am Lena Stagg, your co-host of She Said, She Said, and the author of the Recipe Records series of rock and roll cookbooks full of good food, good fun, and great rock and roll stories, facts, and trivia. And as a little treat today for 2020 and for the Kansas City Chiefs, I thought I'd give you a sampling of one of those classic stories that is recorded in the original Recipe Records cookbook, which covers hit music from the 50s to the 90s. And this tale accompanies my recipe for baby bird cakes, which are the best pancakes you will ever taste. And they're oh so easy to make. The story was written by my best friend and co-author, the late Maggie McHugh. And in this story, she refers to me as Lainey. So I am the star of this cool, cool story, which is none other than with Jacob Dylan, Bob Dylan's oh-so-talented son. So for the next couple of minutes, relax and join me for a Recipe Records story. And remember, this is written by the late Maggie McHugh, telling you the true tale of our adventure. Jacob Dylan, the son of folk legend Bob Dylan and his band, The Wallflowers, were playing at a show at our favorite venue in St. Louis, The Pageant. It's a fabulous, smaller venue with a great atmosphere. The place was still fairly new when we went to this show, and luckily for us, it wasn't very crowded. We had seats in the balcony, but after the opening act, Everlast, finished, we noticed there was plenty of room on the floor right in the front of the stage. And Lainey looked at me and said, let's go. We headed down to the floor and got our space right in front. We waited patiently while the the previous band's equipment was torn down and the Wallflower's equipment emerged. Lainey had a poster with her that her precious son, Ethan, who was five years old at the time, had made for her to bring along to the show. It said, Play the Baby Bird Song from Ethan, age five. Ethan had instructed Lainey to take this poster to the show and get the band's autograph. Right. So once the show got rocking, she held the sign up a few times, and it got Jacob Dylan's attention, to which he asked her if Ethan was there. And she replied, no. And Jacob remarked, he probably has to work tomorrow, huh? And the band played their last song, left the stage, and the crowd erupted in loud cheers, demanding an encore. After what seemed like an eternity, they returned to the stage and rocked out once again. After the first song of the encore, Jacob yelled out to Lainey, who was still holding up the sign, this song is for Ethan. And the band began to play their beautiful lullaby, Baby Bird. Lainey and I were almost in tears when he finished, and after the song, Jacob screams to the crowd, that was for Ethan at age five, and this is for Ethan when he turns 16. And they immediately tore into a version of the Who's Won't Get Fooled Again. It was a great moment, and we couldn't wait to get home to tell little Ethan all about it. But there was more excitement to be had that night. Now, if you want to know what happened next and how Lainey got to actually meet Jacob Dylan, well, you'll have to go to my website, lanastag.com, and order the original recipe records cookbook. And hey, while you're there, check out my other books as well. I have two children's books and three other rock and roll cookbooks. So sign up for my blog, and you'll 
get amazing rock and roll features and stories. Again, it's lanastag.com. Happy 2020, Jude. Happy 2020, and congratulations to the miraculous Kansas City Chiefs as they head into the Super Bowl. It's the happiest day. <laughs> Both Lena and I are gigantic fans. She grew up in the Kansas City area, and I lived in Kansas City from 1993 until 2000. So uh, we are Arden fans, and we <laughs> say my home, sweet my home. So we are, <laughs> we are very, very excited. And I tell you guys, that story that you heard is so indicative of what is inside the covers of the Recipe Records series books. They are not just recipes. If you think that's what they're about, you're missing they are about recipes, and they're about records. So if you're a music lover, which I am, then you definitely read all the adventures of Lainey and Maggie and all the bands that they met and all the people they encountered along the road. So as she said, make sure you go to lanastag.com and order these great books. And I am Jude Sutherland Kessler, Lena's sidekick here on She Said, She Said. And absolutely, I love, love, love those stories, and I highly recommend these fun cookbooks to you. Um, if you want to start 2020 right, get into that kitchen and rattle pots and pans with recipe mm -hmm. records. And if you are looking for some true and factual Beatles quote-unquote tales, look no further because you have got the John Lennon series, which is a highly researched for 34 years documented narrative history detailing the life of John. And of course, if you're going to tell his story, you tell the story of his mates, the Beatles, from the day he was born in 1940 up to December of 1980. Uh, four of the books are already on the market. I ended the last one at the very end of 1964, and I'm now working on 1965. And I want to remind everyone that Volume 4, Should Have Known Better, which tells the hugely, I mean, it's the year of Beatlemania. It's the hugely exciting story of the Fab Four almost day by day is just about sold out. We have sold out Volume 1, 2, and 3, but we have a few copies of Volume 4 left, so please scurry on over to my website as well, which is, surprisingly enough, johnlennonseries.com, and you'll be able to sign up for our monthly newsletter. We've got lots of interesting articles and updates and coupons and things like that. So, Lena and I are back for 2020 here on She Said, She Said once a month, and we are going to bring you some of the greatest people in the world, and certainly our guest today is no exception. You're absolutely right. And Jude, if your listeners cannot get a physical copy of your book, there are ebooks available. Is that right? That is right. It is on all ebook formats from Kindle to Nook to everything in between. Okay, so make sure that you get your copies today because it is a long, cold, lonely winter. And yeah. these books will bring you lots of lots of warmth. I promise that. So Jude is absolutely right. We are thrilled to be talking today with the founder and host of the highly esteemed podcast, Glass Onion, on John Lennon. He's an English teacher, a musician, a blogger, and a podcaster from Egham, a town in England that he says is so small that some of the people who live there have never heard of it. But he's also <laughs> lived in Thailand, Laos, Italy, and Spain as well. He's been a Beatles and John Lennon fan for 30 years, which means he became a fan about four years after Jude started writing the John Lennon series. And about a year ago, he put his knowledge of John Lennon to work via the Glass Onion podcast, a deep dive into John Lennon's life, music, and the complex psychology of John. 
And he's also r really one heck of a nice guy. He was so sweet to ask me to be on the show last year. We had such a good time talking together. I thought it was going to go on forever. We, we could just talk for hours and hours. So Lena and I are very happy to welcome to our show Mr. Anthony Rotuno. Hey, Anthony, thank you for being our first guest of 2020 on She Said, She Said. Hi, Jude. Hi, Lena. How can I possibly live up to that introduction? You can you can do it. Yeah. You're from you're from Egham. You could do anything. Yeah, I haven't lived in Egham for a long time, but uh, I made up that joke myself because it's a small <laughs> town. But uh, it's a long time since I've lived there. I've lived in quite a few places, as you said, since then. But yeah. Well, we are we're yeah. so thrilled to have you here, and I want to make sure that <laughs> people understand that the name of your show is the whole name, the full name is Glass Onion colon on John Lennon. It sounds like we're saying Glass Onion on John Lennon and explaining it, but that is the full title. So if you're looking for Anthony's show, that's what you want to look for. And and we are I know you're gonna want to look for it after you hear what we're gonna talk about today because we're gonna take back on a little tour through 2019 via Glass Onion on John Lennon, and we're going to be looking at some of the really incredible guests that you had on the show, Anthony, and talking about what you learn and experience with each one of those people. So let's just start in your own home country where I, I understand you're living in. I think when you and I talked, you were living in Spain. But yeah, that's right, yeah. I, yeah, mean, well, I, I don't mean to move around so much. It's just... Uh, I teach English as a foreign language. That's one of the reasons that I'm able to live in all these places. And I am a bit nomadic, I'll be honest. But uh, I'm in England at the moment, yes. Well, how many times have you moved, Anthony? How many times have I moved? Uh, yeah, how many times? Four or five, maybe? Okay, well, I've moved 32 times, and I'm getting ready to move n number three. So. I know. You told me that when you're on my show. I know. It's nuts, isn't it? Yeah. So how do you feel each yeah. time? Do you get do you get used to it or? Yeah, you do. After a while, you really start to. After a year or so, you start to get an itch to move because you're like, you know, I can't, I can't do this. I can't stay here. So, I I, I think you are far from being uh, someone who moves around. I think you're very very stable. But you know. Well, I, well, one of the advantages of it actually is that I don't accumulate a lot of stuff because. Uh, there's a there's almost a whole movement around decluttering nowadays, isn't there? Yeah, there is, and and I can't get into it. I'm I'm full of clutter, but you know, I am full <laughs> no, of clutter. Well, no, I was gonna say a few years ago I had a massive decluttering. I had a, we call it in England a car boot sale. I think you guys call it a garage sale, garage right. sale. Right. And I and I made some money from that. And ever since then, I've never not really accumulated. My only real vices are books and uh, maybe some DVDs. So it's not bad. Well, my husband is a Jackie, and I, of course, have a gigantic Beatles collection. So course, it's yeah. we are we're clutter plus. But you know, uh, I hear you. I, it would be nice, but we're addicted. We really are. Well, you're, it just so happens that the first podcast guest who was on Glass Onion on John Lennon is one of my very very favorite people. It is Liverpool's own David Bedford who is the author of many books. The first one was Liddy Pool. The second one, The Fab 104, and then his great book, Finding the Fourth Beetle. And he also made one of the films that I most respect. In fact, he was selected to be our featured artist for Beatles at the Ridge two years ago because of the superb work that he did in Looking for Lemon, this great film. And I know that you and Dave chatted a good deal about Pete Best because he's great, great friends with Pete, and about Dave's insights on Pete's role in the Beatles and Pete's release from the band. So tell us a little bit about what you two talked about, if you don't mind. Yeah, so um, yeah, David and I met in Liverpool, actually, at the Jacaranda, which I'm sure you ladies have heard of, which is the place that the Beatles left from to go to Hamburg in August 1960. And we just had a great time. We bantered from you know the first minute that we met. And... Um, Pete Best, of course, this whole issue, it's actually had a whole book written about it, a book called Drummed Out, which was written by uh, Spencer Lee, who I think was a DJ in, in Liverpool. <laughs> and uh, I guess like a couple of camps have emerged, because as, as you'll know from the Tune In book, you know, Mark Lewis and 
basically, uh, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he kind of said that Pete was very, very limited. And then David kind of has an opposite view. And I heard David talking to Robert Rodriguez, who I'm sure you know as well. Oh, yeah. And he was, say- mm-hmm. yeah, he was saying that he played the Decca tape to some drummers who'd never heard of it or never heard the tape before. And they said there was no trouble with Pete's drums. So um, I don't know. Do you want my yeah. opinion on that? Should I? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I about a week ago, because I knew we were going to talk about this, I sat down with, uh, with the Decca tapes, and I listened to them on headphones and tried to have a completely open mind as if I'd never listened to them before. And I must be honest, like, I find that it's a bit, it's quite repetitive, and it doesn't have those dynamic fills that Ringo brought to the band. But, of course, the counter to that is that we only ever heard Pete up to 1962, and unfortunately the, the Love Me Do, you know, the Love Me Do recording where he does, starts using mm-hmm. that skip beat that doesn't really work. I think he's kind of, a lot of people just judge him on that. And also, what's happened on YouTube, I don't know if you've heard that, but people have started putting Pete's drums to songs like Day in the Life or Come Together, you know, mm. and obviously they don't work, and that's, I think that's a bit cruel, so... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, David and I, we <laughs> talked about other things as well. We talked about mostly, like, pre-fame stuff, and I've, I've started to become more and more interested in the pre-fame Liverpool stuff, I think, because... The thing from 63 to 70, we kind of, there's so much, you know, radio shows, TV shows, that I think the pre-fame years are more fascinating to me now. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we just had a great talk. It was, he's a lovely guy. <coughs> yeah, he is. A, he's wonderful and so knowledgeable, and he really tries to get everything right, you know, and I have a great respect for him. I have a, an old radio show called The John Lennon Hour, and Pete, Pete was on there, and I played, he was nice enough to let me play his version of several Beatles songs, and then we would play Ringo's, and we did them side by side, and, um, you know, Pete was holding up very, very well, and I don't think, I, I think you've made a brilliant point that most people are not taking into consideration. And that is, you can't judge someone who did not get a chance to go past 1962. So, you know, that's unfair because look at how the Beatles blossomed and changed and grew in those years afterwards. He did not have that opportunity. So, anyway, we're going to listen to a quick clip of your program on Glass Onion with Dave Bedford, and then we'll get your comments on that clip, Anthony. Here we go. Pete Best. Right. Yes. Yeah. Right, strap yourselves in, everybody. Got <laughs> a big debate. So, um, there's obviously a lot of quote unquote revisionism that goes on oh, yeah. in different places. One thing when you I listened to you talking to Robert Rodriguez, mm. the myth about the Camphot taking away his bass drum. Yeah. Just explain that. Because right? Camphot yeah. didn't do rock and roll. That's, that's no, he didn't. Say. That's it. And these are the lengths to which I go to my research. I got the 100 song set of Burt Camford's songs mm. right, and listen to them all. Trust me, that is painful for someone who's a rock and roll fan. What kind of stuff was it? It's, it's what they call in Germany, they call Schlager music. It's light entertainment, big band. So you'd have drums, but it would be more accent on the snare and the cymbals, a little bit of bass to keep everything in time. But it's not a dominant instrument because your main thing is it's your melody and all the other instruments going on, like an orchestra. So Camford doing what he did with Sheridan and the Beatles. That's why he picked an old Scottish folk song, yeah, My Bonnie, yeah. and When the Saints Go Marching In, because they were of that ilk that would be known enough in Germany, but it was not Little Richard and Chuck Berry, it was not rock and roll. So at that time, during June 61, the Beatles have now developed this very hard rock and roll sound. Pete's developed what they call the atom beat. Because they had to match out. They had to get the punters off the grocer fry height into the clubs. So when you see the auditorium where they recorded, and I went there a couple of years ago, it's like a big school gymnasium with a stage and curtains. If you want to record a Scottish folk song with a bit of a funky rhythm like, like Sheridan did, you do not want a thumping rock and roll bass drum because mm. you're recording it live there's no baffles there's nothing to separate the sound oh. so you'd want it to be quiet and so Campbell said to Pete all I want is your snare stuff and a cymbal now the rumour about taking the ones that I think came from Tony Sheridan because him and Pete Best they had a fight oh, yeah. they didn't like each other right? yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when you're examining evidence 
for eyewitnesses. You think, okay, why is he the only one who's told this story? Is the history. So, Anthony, what is your reaction to that? Um, well, I mean, that's one good example, the Burt Kampler issue about taking away the bass drum. I think, you know, I haven't read Tune In for a while, but I think Mark Lewison did have other examples. Uh, I think Decker was one of them. I, I can't remember the details, to be perfectly honest with you, but I think it's, unfortunately, it's a riddle that you're never going to solve because we didn't hear, like we said, we didn't hear Pete after 62. But, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's constant revisionism, you know. I'm sure you found in your research that things that you thought were definitely true turn out not to be. So I guess it's, do you think these things will ever be solved, or will they just go on forever? You, you know, at some point, I think we have to get to the bottom of what really actually happened. And a good example is whether or not Neil Aspinall was in the room when Pete was let go from the Beatles. And, of course, mm -hmm. all of the early documentation, including the book that you mentioned, drummed out, very clearly states that he was not, that he was waiting downstairs in NIMS for Pete to come out of the office. Pete himself said he was not in the room. But in recent years, that scholarship has changed, and there's a, there is a worry in the study of historiography that people will begin to change history for their own selfish reasons. So I think that's something we have to guard against, is making sure that people don't change it for the sake of inventing new things or coming up with new perspectives and we yeah. stick to the truth but I, I don't know i don't know you ask a great question will we ever get to the bottom of it i'm not sure but you well, also yeah go ahead no i was going to say david came up with another another idea which is rather than to think of pete or ringo you can actually think of uh, the beatles up to 62 with a was the pete band in that it was more basic rock and roll yeah, and then after '62, you know, they started recording, obviously, and they became more um, innovative. So you can kind of yeah. think of uh, two bands rather than trying to decide between the two drummers. So I love that, and you can do the same thing. It, uh, that's absolutely the 100% truth, and you can do the same thing with managers. There was that garage band, that leathered rough band that Alan Williams managed, and then there is that polished. Uh, suit wearing bow at the waistband that Brian Epstein managed. They're two different bands, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I love that. Well, you also had one of my very favorite people. In fact, we wanted to have him on our show. We had had him penciled in for last October, and somehow we lost touch. And I adore author Philip Kirkland, very knowledgeable author who wrote All Roads Lead to Lennon. And you had him on your program in 2019, so tell us about his new book and anything special that, that he revealed to you when he was on your program. Well, yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about this is that it's not necessarily a John Lennon book, because it's, it's more or less the prehistory of John Lennon's family. Uh, there are some Beatles stories, for example, the, the tour to Scotland, and he talks about Julia Lennon. Julia Lennon's probably a character I have an extreme fascination with. Also, I mean, to be honest, <laughs> I don't know if it's possible to have a crush on a historical figure, but there's something, something about Julia. I think if I'd ever met her and I was one of John <laughs> Lennon's friends, I would have been uh, quite taken with her. But, um, yeah, I mean, we had a great talk. We talked a lot about history in general and how, you know, we be, we're kind of given a mainstream view of history and you know at school and things like that and uh, we both said it's a good it's a healthy thing to question what you're told and um i love the the 19th century history of all the the irish that came to liverpool after the potato famine and as far as i mean there were lots of coincidences you must have found this in the beatles story there's lots of there's so many coincidences that that's why some people think it was almost preordained or something but uh, I'll just give you one example. Um, Isaac Epstein, who was Brian Epstein's grandfather, and William Popjoy, who was the grandfather of the William Popjoy, who was John Lennon's headmaster at Quarry Bank, they both had shops on the same road, which is Walton Road, W-A-L-T-O-N. And in, uh, in 1915, soon after the Lusitania disaster, so during the First World War, uh, there were rumors being put around that both of these men were German. And, of course, after the war started, uh, it was, there was almost going to be a witch hunt against anyone who could be proved to be German. And both of these men both put adverts in the Liverpool Echo, which were almost exactly the same, trying to find out who'd made the slanderous accusation and, and offering £50, pounds, which was probably a lot of money in those days, 
to anyone who could uh, find the culprit. So that's either a coincidence in that two men happened to put the same advert, or if they were actually colluding, let's say, colluding is not the right word, but if they knew each other, then it's a coincidence that Brian Epstein's granddad and John Lennon's headmaster's granddad lived on the same road. One of the things I found about Liverpool is that in, re- in comparison to London, it seems very small. It seems mm-hmm. like everyone knew each other, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, but there were, there were other things. I, I can't remember all the coincidences off the top of my head, but I, I love this book because I'm a bit of a history guy. And it's, it's a kind of book where a John Lennon fan could look at it and say, well, most of this isn't about John Lennon, but my interest in John Lennon will make me interested in history in general. So it's a way of sort of branching away from just Beatles, you know. Yeah, and if, I agree. if you think about Alfred Lord Tennyson saying, I'm a part of all I've met, all of those people in that book make John who he is and lead up to, as you said, the Beatles getting together. So it's important, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, when you, when you read about his grandfather, who's kind of a bit of a Jack the Lad, as we say in England, and then Julia, obviously, there's, uh, I don't have it offhand, actually. I don't have it here, but... Um, he, he described it with some adjectives such as carefree, anti-authoritarian. And when I read them, I'm just thinking, that's John Lennon, you know. Yeah. He got that from his, uh, from his mother. And then, you know, his father was a bit wayward as well. So you can really see where John Lennon came from, basically. That's what I like. No doubt about it. Well, as a treat for our listeners, here is a quick clip of Philip Kirkland, the author of All Roads Lead to Lennon. And let's see what they have to say. She was pregnant. Basically, again, given the morals of the time, she wasn't going to keep it. And the Stanley family decided that she wasn't going to keep it. They were going to send her to this uh, home in Mosley Hill. Salvation Army home, right? Mm. Yeah, it was run by the Salvation Army. Mm. It was private and public. The people who didn't have money went there. They had to sort of work like slaves just to have the accommodations we looked after to give birth and so on there. Which she did. John was immediately packed off to the aforementioned Uncle Sid and Aunt Madge and Joyce mm. in Magul, which was well away from the action. Yeah. Adoption was arranged ostensibly with a friend. We assume that this was a friend of Julia, somebody called Margaret Edison, formerly Margaret Eden. She was married to a Norwegian officer, a naval officer called Peder Pedersen, and they adopted her. John came back, John was never told. The interesting thing comes later because according to Ingrid, or Victoria herself, Hmm. she was named Victoria and she was called Ingrid when she was adopted. It turns out that, in fact, Pedder was actually the father. Yeah, amazing. So the adopted father was, possibly was her dad. So he had an affair with Julia, basically. Yeah. If we look at the childhood photos of Victoria of Ingrid, I think we call her Ingrid, <laughs> she has a blonde, pale look, a sort of stereotypical Norwegian look. So I think it's mm. entirely possible, no? Right, yeah. yeah. Sort of Scandinavian look. So Julia never saw the baby, is that right? And was told that the baby had gone to Norway, but the baby was actually very close by. Was it Crosby? Yeah, then It's a sort of suburb yeah. of Liverpool, yeah. Very close. You know, Anthony, I was really honored to be able to read Philip's book before it was released, and I have to say, of all of the books that I have encountered, and some do an excellent job of giving John's family history, but this is the most authoritative. It's very accurate and thorough. What was the thing, if you had to say there was one thing that impressed you the most about Philip's book, what would it have been? I mean, probably that he's, he's very fact-based. I mean, when, when I interviewed him, he said, you know, I'm not interested in kind of anything uh, airy-fairy, if you know that term. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because we, t- we were talking about um, uh, the kind of theories that people have about Strawberry Fields, the, the song and the place, and he was more fact-based. But, I mean, it's, it's well-researched, it's well-written, not judgmental either. And the other thing I liked about it is, if you notice, beginning of each chapter there's a philosophical quote and um i kind of like that you know i'm a bit of a sucker for a bit of philosophy as well so yeah i mean a great book and the stuff i said the stuff with julia i mean she's such an enigmatic character you could definitely question her you know she's a questionable mother perhaps you know encouraging john to bunk off school but you know mm-hmm. he wouldn't have been what he was without her and it's fascinating to think what she would have done in the 60s you know oh. 
Yeah, yeah. Isn't it? I heard a quote lately that, uh, and then we're going to turn it over to Lena because I know she's, mm -hmm. she has some things she wants to ask you, but I heard a quote lately that I thought so applied to her. My nephew said to his mother, you're a parent instead of a parent. And Julia was a parent, you know. She was definitely a peer first and a parent second. And that definitely made John the, the person that he became. So, you know. Yeah, kind of an auntie or a sort of flighty aunt or even a big sister, you know. Yeah, exactly. All right, Lena. Well, Anthony, I, I know that as the author of a book that blends food and music, I am a true music maniac. And I was intrigued to hear that you play in a band. So tell us about the band, if you don't mind, and what instrument do you play, and give us all the details. Sure. Well, um, unfortunately, because uh, I left Spain in, in July, the band, we're not technically together. But uh, at certain, you know, I, I could go back there, you never know. But uh, the band was called The Backfield Plan, which doesn't necessarily mean anything. <laughs> It's actually the name of a song that we covered. I have a friend who I've known from school, and he's written about 150 songs, but he's never really performed them, and I thought they're too good not to be performed. So we started hmm. covering his songs, and we named it The Backfield Plan. Uh, I was a singer, a guitarist. I play a little bit of piano, and I play a little bit of bass. And hmm. uh, it's, it was a rock band, more or less. I mean, we had an acoustic version of the band, which was using uh, an instrument called a cajon, which is basically a box where you, get, you can get okay. a bass drum and a snare drum sound. And then we had an electric okay. version of the band. And we were very uh, cosmopolitan, because obviously I'm English. We had one other English guy. We had an American. Well, our bass player mm -hmm. was from Peru, and our drummer was Cuban. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a rock band. We had a, That's a, awesome. a country influence. We had a harmonica and a mandolin, and then we had a, quite a blues influence. So it was quite eclectic. That's yeah. awesome. Did you have, of course, a Beatles influence? Oh, definitely, yeah. I'll send you some <laughs> of our music. Uh, Beatles, Beatles and Dylan, I would say. That, but, yeah, there's a little bit of Pink Floyd occasionally. There's a little bit of Chili Peppers because the bass nice. player was a big Chili's fan. And there's a little bit of jazz even because the Cuban drummer is a jazz drummer. So, That's great. Yeah, That's yeah. great. Well, I also remember reading that you were invited to be on Julian Charles's podcast i think it's called the mind renewed the mind renewed yeah and you talk yeah. talk about your band and uh play some of your music there so tell us a bit about that cool experience and um then i'd love to play a little interview of or a little bit of that interview if we have that for our listeners yeah. well I'd, I'd been on julian's show a few times we originally made contact in 2014 and his show is I guess about a bit about society, about politics generally, but it's very eclectic. And I was on his show, and we talked about things like advertising. We talked about we did one called Truth Comedy, which was about how comedy can uh, reveal truths using people like Bill Hicks and George Carlin. If you've ever heard of them, they're my mm -hmm. oh, yeah. favorite stand-up comedians. And then um, I went to India last year. Um, didn't make it to Rishikesh. I, I almost got there, but it was the monsoon season. It was absolutely impossible. But just before I went to India, literally about three days, uh, Julian contacted me and said, uh, I've just heard your album. Would you like to come on and talk about it? And, you know, these things are always better when they're a surprise. So I went on mm -hmm. there and we talked for about an hour and a half. We talked about my latest album, which is called Through Life. And then we talked about my second album, which is Adventures in Retrospect. Uh, something quite weird is that I actually... I didn't make my first album until I was 40, and then I made three albums in two years. Oh, wow! <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was weird. I mean, uh, I just hadn't got the songs down before. I'd been playing them live for ages, but Julian and I, you know how I'm sure you you guys get the same. When you talk to someone for a long time or you've talked to them a lot, you, you just get this lovely rhythm, and it's just so effortless. And it was, it was lovely to talk about the songwriting, because... Another strange thing was that while I was talking, actually ideas about the songs were coming into my head as I was talking. Mm. So I wouldn't have thought of some of the things unless he'd been asking me. So it was, mm. yeah, it was sure, really cool. Sure, sure. I enjoyed that. Very inspirational. That's, mm. that's awesome. Yeah. Well, we're going to uh, play a little clip from The Mind Renewed.
so much to say about this song. It's probably the biggest production number I've ever done, really. Mm. I planned out each verse. If you notice, when if anyone listens to the whole song, there's different effects. The voice is different on nearly every verse. The reason it's called Lessons of War, there's a line about, it's a silly line really, teacher smiles and drops another bomb for us all. Obviously, it's not to be taken literally that the teacher is dropping the bombs. I suppose, in a way, it's, it's the idea that we're all supporting war by paying our taxes and we sort of perhaps do that unquestioningly. War has just been a preoccupation with me, even since I was a child, purely because I've been trying to discover why everybody seems to think it's so normal and it's automatically assumed to be necessary. Oh. And uh, it's very interesting you said about the machine thing, because we made a conscious effort. I said to Kester Jones, my producer, try and find some computer noises. And very interestingly, the sound effects, which we spent uh, a good two or three hours putting together, some of them are bombs and missiles and helicopters, but other ones are like computers. And I think one of them is something like a photocopier or something. Because you're absolutely right. You know, it's a military industrial complex. It's the war machine you and I have talked about mm. many, many times. Absolutely. Mm. And you've got loads of yeah. effects in there. And you start off with church chimes and birdsong at the same time. Yeah. And I just wondered if are you linking somehow the state and religion there? Is that what it's about? The capturing of the religious sensibilities for the purposes of the state, you know? I mean, that sounds very impressive. Civil religion. I should just agree with you there, shouldn't nah. I? <laughs> <laughs> now, um, when we were putting the sound effects together, Kester had a whole a file of 100 sound effects. And the birds tweeting actually came with the sound effect that was called bells. And we just right. played it. And it's something about a bell that does sound very ominous. Yeah. You know, what really happens rather than me having a specific idea, what I say to Kester often, he's very much on board with this. Try stuff. And then sometimes the meanings come to you as you hear it. You think, well, this is appropriate for this song. And then the meaning comes to you. Okay. So, Anthony. Okay. So do so you I want to comment? Yeah, so that was about yeah a song called Lessons of War, and mm. war is a topic that's that I fascinated maybe fascinated isn't the right word fascinated and horrified me for a long time you know because we we all grew up we all grow up don't we with wars all around us there's never really been a time when there hasn't been war so I'm getting a bit serious here by the way and uh, I'm also planning to write a long blog post I have a blog about Vietnam and I've been watching uh, documentaries and reading books so it was nice to do a war song and it was it's probably the most crafted song I've ever done and we used a lot of sound effects as I talked about there and um, yeah well that's that's terrific yeah a lot of artists find this like you you write a song or you write a book or something and you never sometimes you you read it back or you listen and you think Oh, I wish I'd said something else, but that song was actually one of the ones that I feel was complete. I felt like it was everything I wanted to say, which is a satisfying, good for a neurotic yeah. artist to have that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's gorgeous. Well, Anthony, I know that one of the guests who've been on your Glass Onion podcast who mm. really intrigued me was Ken McNabb, who wrote mm. the new the new book uh, about 1969 called And In The End. So tell us about that book, Anthony, and what was Ken's focus? And does he reveal anything about 1969 that you or or us haven't known? Yeah, well, I mean, effectively it was about the breakup, because as, as you guys know, the band basically broke up in 69. I mean, okay, they were together in right. name. They had one recording session on the 3rd of January 1970 uh, with only three of them, known as the Three Tools, Paul, George, and Ringo. But yeah, Ken's book was basically about the slow disillusion of the band. But you know, that probably makes it sound a bit depressing, but it wasn't. It was very inspirational. And um, I actually got him to read the end of the last page of the book, or a couple of the last paragraphs, because he put it so beautifully that, in fact, 1970 was the beginning of you know a new era. But um, the thing that surprised me, I don't know if you know this, but um, you'll know that when the Paul is dead stuff started happening paul uh, paul went to uh, to retreat to his farm in scotland and life magazine followed him and you sure you know this story where paul threw a bucket mm -hmm. of water on them and then he and someone someone took a photo of it and he said oh you know will you get rid of the photo if i give you a five minute interview and amazingly he said i can't remember the exact words but it's something like the Beatles thing is over he actually told life magazine that and that was in uh, maybe november or december 69 and that got completely missed. Wow. You know, 
and and obviously we we know the official story is that you know, they ended in April 1970 when his McCartney album came out. But that was amazing. And the other thing that was quite amazing that really showed the difference between 1969 and 2019, we did the interview, was that obviously, you know, all this stuff is going on with the Beatles, with business and with music. But they all went on holiday in the summer and were completely, like, incommunicado for, I don't know, two weeks or three weeks. So all that stuff can just be put on hold for a few weeks, which obviously would never happen now, you know? <laughs> Nowadays you have to be glued to your phone it seems like and you can't be out of contact for two hours let alone you know two weeks so I thought that was really interesting but I mean it's a lovely <laughs> book and our conversation was was strange because we we did nearly four hours over three Skype talks I mean wow. Jude said you know her and I conversation could have gone on forever I think that's <laughs> the most characteristic thing about my about my podcast is that we go on tangents all over the place and I don't know, Ken and I That's basically terrific. went on a, on a journey, you know, over, I think I put out three and a half hours in the end. I had to edit it a bit, but we did four hours all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. Well, we're going to play a clip from your podcast. This is Glass Onion, and uh, you're, ch- you're going to be playing a clip of your chat with Ken McNabb, the author of And In The End. John Lennon gave an interview to Ray Coleman, I think, where he, John was always prone to exaggeration. But he did say during this interview that Apple was losing money at the rate we're going, we'll be bust in six months or something like that. Yeah. That screams headlines all over the world. Beatles in bankruptcy shock. So at that point, there's a guy sitting in, in the heart of Manhattan called Alan Klein, we touched on earlier. Mm-hmm. And when he read that headline about Lennon says... The Beatles are going bust. He rubbed his pudgy hands in glee and said, gotcha. They came to London in February 1969, had a meeting with John and Yoko. It always has to be John and Yoko. It's never John on his own. Mm-hmm. And pressed the right buttons, Anthony, because he appealed to John's vanity. He appealed to his ego. They did have a lot in common. Klein was an orphan. He'd lost his mother at an early age. John had lost his mother at an early age. Klein was a profanity spewing hustler and John liked that you know there was no privilege to Klein and he spoke honestly and that all appealed to John but in the background to all this was Lee Eastman Linda Eastman's father and John Eastman her brother they were showbiz lawyers in America and New York very successful family business and they had floated the idea without it being official in any shape or form about you know, maybe we could help out, you know. And, and the contrast between the Eastmans and Klein could not have been more different because the Eastmans reeked of Park Avenue privilege. And Paul is very class conscious, and that appealed to his vanity. And, and also, they're almost family. In a couple of months down the line, the Eastmans would be family. So you have this terrible dichotomy between the two parties. Anthony, I, I, I love what you guys were talking about. You you want to comment on that a little bit? Um, yeah, well, there's a little bit of Ken's humour when he said uh, Alan Klein with his pudgy hands was uh, rubbing his pudgy <laughs> hands to get his uh, hands on the Beatles. Yeah, I mean, Ken, Ken's got a great sense of humour. I mean, Scotland, you know, generalising a little bit, but people from Glasgow, for example, are a little bit like people from Liverpool. They're just That humour is mm. just something you grow up with. And, uh, yeah, he's he just got a great way of uh, describing things, both uh, written and, you know, talking about them. So that was, that was just a great surprise because Ken had done a couple of interviews, but they'd only been half an hour or so. <laughs> and I think he was a bit surprised that we, we went for so long. But the thing is that we, the reason it went for so long is that we were going month by month. And we'd, we'd done an hour and a half and we'd only got to like May or something. And we thought, well, we can't, you can't get to May, go month by month and then suddenly stop. So we thought we've got to get to December, and it just went on and on. But it, it was just—it was great. I mean, Ken's a great guy. We've been in contact ever since, and I'll, I'll get him back on the show. We'll find a topic well, if there isn't one already. I got a an Amazon gift card for Christmas, and because of your podcast, I am spending it to buy Ken's book. And in the end, so. Oh, uh, there you go. 
thank you very much for turning me on to that great book, which I will definitely need when I get to that section of the John Lennon series, and I can't wait to read it, too. So we are running out of time, and we've only touched on just a few, and I mean a few of the great guests that you had on your program in 2019. Of course, I was thrilled to be invited on the show around John's birthday, and I know you also talked with someone that I wish we could have explored a little bit more, um, John and Yoko's assistant during the early 1970s, Dan Richter, was on your program. Yeah. You also chatted with one of our favorite people from Beatles at the Ridge, Dr. Kid O'Toole, the music expert who is uh, an, one of the editors of Beatle Fan magazine. But one guest that I think must have been extremely special for you was your mom, Frances Rattuno, she was on your program and talked about her memories of the 1960s. So tell us, did you learn anything new about your mom or the 60s on that program? Well, yeah, that's pretty <laughs> interesting. Uh, we, we, the basic premise of our show, this will sound uh, absurd for uh, a show that's supposed to be entertaining, but my mom has always told me that for her, living in the suburbs of the 60s, Nothing was swinging at all. It was, it was, it was completely boring. There was no swinging 60s. So the, I guess the, the premise of our show is to explore uh, normal life. But we found that mm. the kind of... I mean, I know a lot about my mum. You know, we're very close. We've been close uh, for a long time. We've been, we went through a lot when I was a bit wild in my 20s. So we've got mm -hmm. strong bonds. But, um, but we found that we were celebrating ordinary life. And that was our kind of conclusion, that... Uh, you know, the swinging 60s was fine, but, you know, ordinary life's not bad either. And uh, the thing I learned about right. my mum is that she used to, her and her friend used to jive to records in, uh, I think it was her friend's living room or their bedroom. Mm. So never knew that about my mum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it was great. It's nice to make one of your family members slightly famous as well. So a few hundred people <laughs> listened to that talk at least. So. <laughs> well, that's great. Those historical records are important. I mean, the person who lived the day-to-day -day life. I was from a very small town in Louisiana, a very conservative North Louisiana town, and there was nothing swinging going on in my 60s either, unless you count going out to the swing set and swinging. That was that was it. <laughs> that was the full extent of it. So, but that was that was so brilliant to invite your mom on to give her first-hand details and. I mean, she was giving you insights that nobody else could provide. And Lane and I, of all the guests, and we love all of our guests, but I think, well, I'll speak for myself. The ones that I cherish and really hold in my heart are when we get to talk to people like Ivor Davis, who toured with the Beatles, the only person to go on the whole North American 1964 tour with the Beatles, and with Art Schreiber, who joined a week late because he was covering the Democratic National Convention. But those guys... You know, they have the first-hand knowledge, and to me, that is such a wonderful and rare opportunity. It was, it was a spectacular, spectacular experience. And, and speaking of an opportunity, Anthony, we want people to have the opportunity to hear Glass Onion, colon, on oh. John Lennon in 2020. So how can they hear your amazing podcast and how can they follow you on social media okay well i host it from soundcloud so soundcloud.com forward slash glass onion jl pod and then i'm on all the most of the platforms that everybody will know itunes stitcher spotify podbean there's also a facebook page and all of those are glass onion colon on john lennon as you said and then the twitter handle is at Onion Lennon, that's capital O, capital L. And, um, yeah, all I can say about my show really is that it's, as you said, it's a deep dive. I mean, really I find that a lot of the time the tangents are the most fun. You know, I mean, these topics have been talked about a lot, but I, I find, you know, it's, I like these organic conversations and they can go off into any territory we want to, so there's no rules. So um, some of them are a bit sure. long, it must be said. But, you know, I keep them to, I don't know, an acceptable length. Is two hours an acceptable length? I don't know. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. No, well, no you know, those those long conversations, you know, they provide a lot of organic thought and material that um, that people are, are loving, you know, catching 
especially on a podcast where you can listen to it when you're sitting there on the bus or whatever. And um, so it's a terrific opportunity to listen to these amazing stories and um, conversations about material that most people probably do not know. So thank you so much for being on She Said, She Said, Anthony, and we wish you all the best for your Glass Onion podcast in the upcoming months. It's been a joy having you here with us to talk off the thank new you. year. You're very welcome. Thanks for the invitation. And um, I've stockpiled a lot of episodes, so the podcast will keep going. I thought it would have like a natural end. I thought I'd run out of topics, but that may not be the case. It may go on <laughs> all of this year and uh, beyond. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> I, well, I have a feeling you're going to keep on going. Yeah, probably. probably. <laughs> So very much that you are back in England and a British band and, and start rocking the UK. Yeah, all right. Thanks very much. Be Thank great. you, Anthony. Thank you. And to all of our listeners today, hang on to your hats because this year on She Said, She Said is going to be Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know Anthony and Jude are chuckling at that reference since John so loved Wind in the Willows and the incorrigible Mr. Toad. Oh, yeah. But it's true. This year, She Said, She Said is going to give you all a chance to hear from some extremely incredible folks in the Beatles world. First up in March, it's the return of one of our most popular guests ever, Mr. Rogue Best. <laughs> and with Rogue will be the handsome, talented, and always beloved Beatles, the one and only Mr. Pete Best. We are so excited to have both Pete and Rogue on our show. I am smiling so much my face is hurting right now. Then in April, it's tea time with the lovely, witty, and brilliant Angie and Ruth McCartney, two of our very favorite people. They have the best um, live shows on Facebook. <laughs> you should check them out. And in May, we'll be swept back to the earliest days of Beatlemania with Beatles bass player Mr. Chaz Newby. Woo! Is that a lineup or what? We are so thrilled, and there might even be more surprises along the way. And we hope you will stay. you will be with us. And stay tuned to She Said, She Said on our Facebook and Instagram pages, and we'll keep you posted on dates. And until then, here's to food for thought, food for the soul, and food for the love of rock and roll. ta and shine on.